0: Hello and welcome to this brand new episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. This is going to be the last of our traditional episodes um, as in December I'll be doing two Christmassy, well at least midwinter based tales and the foods won't necessarily be in the story but they will be traditional winter ones. This one however is in our traditional format a story and then some folklore and discussion about the story and the food that's in it. And then it follows it up with a recipe. I hope you enjoy it. This is an interesting one for me. It's The Hand of Glory, which appears in various different volumes. Um, it's a Yorkshire tale. I will put where I was, my inspiration came from in the show notes. And also some other versions. So that if you're interested, you can read up a little bit more about them. But let's start, shall we? Are you listening comfortably? Then I'll begin. In the north-western tip of Yorkshire, where the county of Durham lies only on the other side of the valley, is a high, bare stretch of land called Stainmore. Wide, open, bare spaces of tether, which in the past had an evil reputation. Few travellers whose business was not urgent would venture that way, and it often turned out to be a matter of life and death for them. The most desperate of outlaws congregated there, and from very early times, there are records of the monks of Durham extending their sanctuary to those who begged to be admitted, having slain a man on Stainmore. Be that as it may, it was, unfortunately, still an unhealthy place to be during the 18th century. But the road from Westmoreland ran that way and some were forced to brave the dangers as well as the terrible weather. And in the same way that people that lived there had to do with the same. However, superstition added fear to fear. And among one of the local superstitions was the belief in the macabre powers of the hand of glory. Let me tell you a tale. One evening, at the end of the 18th century, a weary female traveller arrived at the Spittle Inn on Bower's Moor. As she came in the door, the rain whipped in with a wind that had been howling round the inn all night. A dreadful storm was raging. She stated that she had far to go the next day and must be away very early in the morning. All she needed was just a bit of food before setting out, and if the landlord would trust her and leave her breakfast on the table, she would just slip away after resting without disturbing them. She was, unfortunately, too poor to take a bed, but would be grateful to be allowed to sit by the dying fire until she had to go out again. The landlord was uneasy with this request, because, coincidentally, he'd been that day to Brough Fair and had returned with a huge, well, considerable amount of money as a result of selling some sheep. But he couldn't send the poor woman away at such a late hour on such a terrible night. So at last he reluctantly agreed on condition that his serving mate should stay up and remain with a stranger until she had her breakfast and departed. He and his family then retired happily upstairs to bed, leaving the quite grumpy servant girl to get what rest she could in the strange woman's company. The traveller sat in a chair, pulled up to one side of the hearth. And the girl, thinking to at least get some sleep before dawn for another hard day's work, stretched herself full length on the old wooden bench at the opposite side of the rim. She closed her eyes and attempted to sleep, but somehow sleep just wouldn't come. She was so uncomfortable on the hard bed and she missed her comfy blankets upstairs. And... Because of this, she wasn't disposed to talk to the strange woman, whose fault this was. And she also appeared to be dozing on and off. So, the girl kept her eyes closed and pretended to sleep, even now, and then giving a gentle snore. She felt the traveller was watching her, and in her turn, peeped now and again through half-closed lids at her companion. It was during one of these surreptitious glances that she saw a sight that filled her with considerable unease. The stranger had moved in her chair and stretched out her legs, and from beneath the skirts, the servant her girl had a glimpse of what were definitely male breeches and a pair of men's boots. Frightened though she was, she was a clever girl, and she realised that safety was in keeping calm and thinking quickly. With great deal of self-control, she turned over once or twice, seeing if she could find a more comfortable position. She closed her eyes tight and turned her breathing to a low, regular, gentle snore. The traveller was completely taken in by her act, and after a minute or two, roused himself and stood up, while the girl, continuing to breathe deeply, squinted at him in the glow of the dying fire. "'He took from his pocket a dead man's dried and pickled hand, "'set it on the table and fitted a candle into it. "'Then he lit the candle with care, "'coaxing the wick to a steady flame, "'and, picking it up, went to the bench "'on which the terrified girl was lying. "'He bent down and passed the candle to and fro all over her, "'saying as he did so, "'Let those sleep who are asleep "'and let those who are awake stay awake. "'Then he set the hand of glory.' down on the middle of the table and drawing back the window curtain said flash out flame hand of glory immediately or so it seemed to the terrified girl the flame leapt to twice its original size then the robber opened the door to the road and stood on the top step whistling up his companions who were watching and listening for his signals the girl jumped up with all her might crept after him coming up behind him Pushed him with all her might so that, taken him completely by surprise, he went, fell down the steps and rolled into the road. She slammed that heavy door and barred it, and then rushed upstairs to wake her master. She knocked on the bedroom door, but, getting no answer, knocked and knocked and knocked hard with her fists, calling for her, her master and mistress to wake, but they lay as if dead. She screamed and shook them roughly, pulling off the blankets and doing everything she could to wake them, but they still slept, as though they were in a sort of trance. And from the room where the innkeeper's grown son the silence was just complete. By this time, the stranger had picked himself up, and his companions had arrived. She could hear them talking and cursing on the road outside, preparing to break in. Something had to be done, and quickly. Being a local girl, she had heard tales of the dreadful powers of the Hand of Glory, and even had no doubt that it was that instrument of evil burning on the table that was the cause of the trance into which her employers had fallen. The clever and brave girl left off her attempts to get them up and ran downstairs to where the grisly candle still burned in its terrible pickled hand. Looking away from some sort of dowsing it without actually having to touch it, she saw a half pint left, unnoticed. She grabbed it and poured it over. Nothing, nothing at all, the candle still burned. If anything, it burned more. But then her eye fell on a bowl of fresh milk. She put aside the evening before to skim in the morning. Grabbing up the whole bowl, she threw the entire contents over the hand, and the candle thankfully spluttered and went out. Immediately, the family upstairs roused. Rushing up to them, the girl told them all that had happened. The landlord's son, arming himself with a loaded gun, went to the window to talk with the man. Little surprised they hadn't made off at the first signs of resistance from inside the inn. The first of the thieves, who addressed as a woman, First threatening and then cajoling, said that if the hand of glory was returned to them, they would go away quietly, never to trouble that inn again, and no harm done. But the honest innkeeper and his family had had too good a proof of its power and had no wish to submit others to the terrible things that had happened to them. So, he refused to give it up, and great glamour broke out again as the gang prepared to rush the door to retrieve their treasure. At this, however the innkeeper's son lost patience and shot his gun at them. Faced with such a practical demonstration of the opposition they were likely to encounter, they made off towards the moor. Next morning, a trail of blood leading a considerable distance out onto the moor proved the effectiveness of the shot. But the law for either side was a long way away and the gang of thieves were certainly not disposed to invoke it on their own behalf. So, as the end of the story and what happened afterwards to that particular hand of glory no one knows. And that is the end of my tale and I hope it pleased you for it had no other purpose. What did you think of the story? I hope it wasn't too dark for you. Just these dark nights seem like the perfect time for just a little scary. I say that as someone who is terrified by horror films I think it stems from when I watched Ghostbusters too young I've never been able to watch anything darker than a thriller since I find ghost stories fascinating though so I clearly don't mind being scared a little in an atmospheric way I just draw the line at creatures with knives on the end of their hands Actually, the stories about how Hands of Glories were made are much more gruesome than our tale I'm going to share it with you anyway You all seem like lovely people I'm sure you won't be going off to try and make one and use it for various unethical tasks. You'd struggle in many countries anyway. because firstly, you need to find the corpse of a hanged man. And he must have been sentenced to hang, not just an unfortunate roast-based accident. You then remove the hand from the corpse. This might have been difficult if you didn't get to the hanged man early, as they were also supposed to be good for treating tumours, swellings and warts. Everyone was so convinced with these cures, there were often cues. Nursemaids would even stroke afflicted children with a dead man's hand still attached to the corpse. Anyway, back to our hand of glory. First, get up very early and steal your hangman's man's hand. Depending on some recipes, you're going to need some other things from the corpse, so maybe steal the whole corpse just in case. I would suggest that this would be a good scheme to employ in the cold weather for practical reasons, but part of the instructions suggest the dog days of summer are a preferred part of the ritual, so you're out of luck there. Now, you're going to pickle... So salt the hand. Here are the instructions from the French from Le Secre du Petit Albert in 1751. Wrap it up in a piece of shroud or winding sheet, in which let it be well squeezed to get any small amount of blood that may have remained in it. Put it then into an earthen vessel with zimat, saltpetre, salt, and long pepper, the whole well powdered. Leave it 15 days in that vessel. Afterwards, take it out and expose it to the noontide sun in the dog days till it is thoroughly dry. And if the sun is not sufficient, put it into an oven heated with fern and vervain. There's quite a lot of discussion over Zimat. Some people believe it was verdigris, others believe sulfate of iron. The dog days previously mentioned refer to the hot, sultry days of July and early August. Well, hopefully. it can be cold and damp in England, so perhaps that's why the additional oven instructions were helpful. Vervain is also known as verbena. I imagine that collection of herbal bags at the back of the cupboard won't cut the mustard, though. This wasn't the only recipe for the hand. The following one from Yorkshire, and displayed alongside the only hand of glory apparently still in existence in Whitby Museum, is quite different. It suggests the hand should be pickled in salt and the urine of a man, woman, dog, horse and mare, smoked with herbs and hay for a month, hung on an oak tree for three nights running, then laid at crossroads, then hung on a church door for one night, while the maker keeps watching the porch. And if it be that no fear hath driven you forth from the porch, then the hand be true one, and it be yours. Once all this is done, you must shape the hand so it can hold a candle. There are also differences of opinion for the candle too. Of course, Petty Albert suggests, Then compose a kind of candle with the fat of a hanged man, virgin wax, and sisame of Lapland. Now you can see why I suggested you needed to steal the corpse. It's frankly much more horrid than the hand itself, so you can see why other people suggested using virgin wax, which contained clippings of the dead man's hair. Much more practical and lots less disgusting. Well, comparatively anyway. Also, there's no need to find a way to get rid of the rest of the body, which, unless you want to find out the extent to which your friends hold you in esteem, always seems like quite a lot of bother. There's also a version where no candle is necessary and the fingers of the hand light up. Apparently, unlit fingers indicated persons in the household who weren't asleep. There's a couple of obvious problems here for the thief. One being that they might not know how many people were present in total. The second being that many households were bigger than five. I've barely touched on what Hand of Glory could achieve. In our story, it was used for keeping people asleep. But depending on where you do your reading, they could also burn forever, provide a light only visible to the perpetrator and not to the household, and unlock any door. Such is the case in the story of the same name in the Ingoldsby Legends, where we have a hand which opens locks, keeps people's motionless and asleep. Here's a first verse. Now open, lock, to the dead man's knock. Fly bolt and bar and band. Nor move nor swerve, joint muscle or nerve, at the spell of the dead man's hand. Sleep all who sleep, wake all who wake, but be as the dead for the dead man's sake. Interesting anyway, isn't it? The Hand of Glory fascinated 19th century folklore collectors. Francis Groves apparently heard his story from a judge, and William Henderson was surprised this was considered a foreign phenomenon, as he had at least two locals' examples of this town in Yorkshire. The tales were common across Europe, from Finland to Italy and Ireland to Russia, over the last 400 years. There were also possibly some thieves in Ireland who believed a Hand of Glory really did work as advertised. It was reported in the Observer of the 16th of January 1831 as follows. On the night of the 3rd, some Irish thieves attempted to commit a robbery on the estate of Mr Napper of Screw County Meath. They entered the house armed with a dead man's hand, with a lighted candle in it, believing in the superstitious notion that a candle placed in a dead man's hand will not be seen by any but those whom it's used, and also that if a candle in a dead hand be introduced into a house, it will prevent those who may be asleep from waking. The inmates, however, were alarmed, and the robbers fled, leaving the hat behind them. The hand itself wasn't the only item of interest in the tale, however. The need for milk to put out the candle is another interesting discussion point. Here in our tale, it took something untainted to overcome the evil of the hand, and the milk was the first item of purity to hand. Milk is interesting, from a folkloric and historic perspective. For such a naturally unstable product. It's the source of several origin stories, and our whole galaxy is named for it, the Milky Way. In fact, the word galaxy derives from gala, the Greek word for milk. In Greek myth, every star comes from drops of Hera's spilled breast milk when she was feeding Hercules. The infant Zeus or Jupiter was fed on goats' milk and honey. In some versions of the myth, the milk was provided by Amathea, the divine goat. The Egyptian goddess Isis was often shown breastfeeding a pharaoh and her husband was celebrated for pouring out a different bowl of milk for each day of the year. Isis was often depicted across the Middle East with large breasts and a cow's head. A recipe for the sacred milk of Isis still survives, involving milk, almond syrup and strawberries. The Fulani people in Africa have an origin story that the world started with a huge drop of milk from which everything else was created and according to Norse legend, the primeval thawing frost cow, Ardumla, produced the four rivers of milk on which the frost giant Ymir fed. The universe was later created from Ymir's body parts. In addition, the goat Hydron provided the milk which formed the basis of the mead drunk in Valhalla by the wounded Aesir. The Celts also had their own milk-associated myths. The Fuwag was a magic Welsh cow with black and brown markings who would appear for anyone in need of milk. She would fill the largest milk pail and then vanish, sometimes into a lake. Glaskribnach was the equivalent grey cow of Irish tradition. If either cow were hurt, milked into a leaking bucket, or otherwise offended, they would disappear before providing all of their milk. One of otherworld cow, the Dun Cow, turned destructive after she was tricked out of her milk and finally had to be slain by Guy of Warwick. It wasn't pretty. You can look it up. In Ireland, they also have their own milk goddess – St. Bridget was washed in milk as a newborn babe and was raised on the milk of a magical otherworld cow. She was unable to digest ordinary cow's milk. This cow was a white one with red ears and it accompanied her around the farms on the eve of her saint's day. At this time of year, there was little milk and many farm women would take a candle to the cow stall, singe the long hair on the upper part of the animal's udder, in order to bring on St. Bridget's blessing so that cow's milk would be abundant in the spring. In England, if you were lucky enough to have a brownie, look after your home or farm, it was important to reward them correctly. A bowl of cream or rich full cream milk and bread, liberally spread with butter and honey, would prevent the brownie considering the householder ungrateful and thus causing havoc around the farm. If you haven't heard of the havoc a brownie can cause, you definitely need to look those tales up. In several of the Isles of Scotland, farmers poured milk through a whole stone in honour of the brownie. And the tompter in Sweden were also thought to cause all sorts of trouble in the dairy if they were not offered something milky to eat. As well as rewarding your household spirits, it was important to protect your dairy and your herd from supernatural influences. Milk was both precious and vulnerable to harm, so farmers took big steps in order to protect it. In order to discourage witches in Ireland, Rowan wood was twisted around the milk pails, as it was considered that witches were the most likely to have caused the problems with your cows. Rowan was also hung at the cowshed door on May Day and bunches of primroses were hung on the cattle or scattered around the door of the dairy and trodden on before crossing the threshold. And in Scotland, a red ribbon was tied to the tails of cattle. Milkmaids also sang to their cattle to ward off fairies and witches in an effort to retain milk yields. Christians were suspicious of this pagan cat worship but were reluctant to let go of milk completely the virgin mary was continually depicted exposing her breasts and lactating there were some other senior christian figures of the early church who believed that the virgin had appeared to them and given them the gift of her milk yes i am thinking what you're thinking but i'm reluctant to trample on people's beliefs so we'll we'll just leave that there There are also lots of references in the Old Testament to milk and honey, 20 in total, and around 50 references to milk on its own. Milk and honey was a shorthand or a place of plenty. The sweetness of the honey with the soundness of the yoghurt was a particularly delicious combination. Idea that takes us from folklore to history. Milk is one of our oldest foods, but due to its unstable nature, it's highly unlikely they were thinking of drinking fresh milk as a paradise in the hot countries of the Middle East, as it was sour and become inedible very quickly. Yoghurt and cheeses were much more popular. It was originally thought that sheep, goats and cattle were first domesticated for their meat hides, and horn from around 9,000 to 7,000 BCE in the Near East, modern Iraq and then exploited for their secondary products of milk, wool, and farm power in the 5th millennium. However, recent dating of milk residues found on pottery remains suggests that the milking of animals may have occurred much earlier, during the 7th millennium, and possibly even earlier, and that the majority of milking occurred in northwest Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey. I love to spend a long time on this history. We don't really have enough time. Essentially, between 9,000 BCE in Turkey and medieval northern Europe, there is a long history of milk being converted into products that benefited from bacterial activity, such as yoghurt and cheese, or were being proof with salt for preservation, like butter. Fresh milk goes off quickly, and the bacteria makes people ill, so the only people drinking fresh milk regularly were people in cooler countries that farmed cows, goats, or sheep. In medieval times, Menstrual blood was thought to be diverted from the uterus during pregnancy and turned itself into milk after delivery. This didn't change for several centuries. At Elizabethan weddings, red and white ribbons tied to a rosemary branch were used to decorate the table of the marriage feast. The white ribbon was a reminder both of milk and the absence of periods during childhood and pregnancy, while the red recalled the woman's monthly purgations suggesting future fertility. Milk white connotated purity and innocence. The idea that milk was actually blood that had turned white is also why milk was banned on meatless holy days, more than half the days of the year. The real problem with fresh milk through time was that it was dangerous to health. The milk carried dangerous bacteria, was milked into dirty vessels which just made things worse. It turned bad very quickly. As is mentioned, it was overcome by turning the milk into longer lasting products, such as yogurt and cheese. An alternative to this was found in India, where they just boiled milk, which solved most of these problems. It was also combined often with sugar, which further preserved it. Milk was also used as a medicine, but in forms where it was less harmful, such as a powerful remedy for all, such as Alexterial milk water, which was good against the plague, surface and almost anything else, and especially useful for the bite of a mad dog. It was a water distilled from numerous herbs and cow's milk, and occurs in many recipes of the 17th century. As food technology improved, great strides were made in preserving milk, such as canning with or without sugar, evaporated milk and condensed milk. But this changed the qualities of milk. It wasn't until pasteurisation that the suggestion that a concept of a big glass of fresh milk being good for your health became a familiar concept. This happened in the US at the end of the 19th century, but not until the 1940s in the UK. Fresh milk became a health product. It can also be delicious, apparently. I agree if that's it made it to its most superior forms, cheese, yoghurt, kefir, butter, cream, creme fraiche, classic cream, ice cream and so on. I just can't drink it as it is. It's fine in tea and coffee, hot chocolate, chai, but not by itself. This isn't a recent thing. When I moved on to a bottle of milk at around three months old, I refused to drink it until my nan suggested that some weak tea be added to the bottle and then I drank it like a trooper. It was the 70s, things like that used to happen then. I still can't stand it on cereal and it's hot, unless it's hot on well-sugared bits or porridge, uh, push coals on cocoa pops. In addition, all milk smells off to me, it's not just me. Vast wet swathes of the planet stop drinking milk once weaned and mostly develop an intolerance for it. My dislike is really only for fresh milk and it's an adulterated form. I love the rest of dairy. I wanted to find something very milky for today's recipe, so I chose something that I love. I don't have much of a sweet cheese, but that's overridden for Indian milk sweets like barfi, gulab jamun, kheer, and, and rasmalai. I think it's because Ma used to take me to Asian sweet centres in Hansworth for these milk based puddings when I was small, so they have a special place in my heart. I chose kheer as it's lovely and milky, but the rice and spices and the reduced milk make it into something special. I love cardamom and pistachio, so I hope this relatively quick recipe appeals to you too. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. As I said at the beginning of the episode, our next two episodes will be slightly different. We will have some wintry seasonal stories and there'll also be some food tales, some things about food that are perfect for this time of year. They won't necessarily match up, but sometimes you have to have a little of indulgence and that's mine. Additionally, there will be a bonus of a collection of my seasonal stories from last year. I know that some of you are new listeners and it'll save you having to wade through the episodes and you can actually just listen to the stories on their own. My particular favourite is The Christmas Spiders. Please listen to it, even if your spiders aren't your favourite thing. They are so sweet, I promise. Anyway hope you'll enjoy the next two episodes and that bonus episode if you want to get in touch with me for anything you know you can find me on twitter at fairy tales food or on instagram again at fairy tales food or via the comments um, and my email on www.hestia'skitchen.co.uk. any other information is also in the show notes i look forward to well i say seeing you again but i really hope you enjoy listening next time and that's it for today And thank you for listening to Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales.